and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today we've got another great poem for you, Cinco de Mayo by Louise J. Rodriguez. We are going to read the poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. But very quickly before we do, a reminder that we love, for obvious algorithmical reasons, ratings and reviews on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. They are by far the best way to help new people find the show and to boost us up the iTunes slash Apple Podcasts algorithm. And if we know anything about the modern world, it is algorithmically run. (laughs) Uh, Algorithms drive the bus, as they say. Indeed. And so, too, do they drive traffic on the Internet. Uh, Boom. Boom. So Luis J. Rodriguez is a fascinating, wonderful poet, writer, journalist, essayist, memoirist. Uh, He was involved in the Chicano movement in the 70s and 80s. Uh, He was briefly incarcerated. He's worked as a journalist. His uh, memoir, Always Running, La Vida Loca Gang Days in L.A., was widely awarded and critically praised. It won the Carl Sandburg Literary Award. It was a New York Times notable book in 1993, and it won the Chicago Sun-Times Book Award. He's also the founder of Tio Chucha Press and Tio Chucha's Centro Cultural in San Fernando and Rocamole Productions. He's done a bunch of other things. There's just a huge long list of different publications and community activities that he has been involved with starting and running and doing outreach through. He's just a dynamic writer and also just a very dynamic community building person. So really excited that we get to do a poem of his on the podcast. Yes, I'm really excited to dive in. Cinco de Mayo by Louise J. Rodriguez. Cinco de Mayo celebrates a burning people, those whose land is starved of blood, civilizations which are no longer holders of the night. We reconquer with our feet, with our tongues, that dangerous language saying more of this world than the volumes of textured and controlled words on a page. We are the gentle rage. Our hands hold the stream of the earth, the flowers of dead cities, the green of butterfly wings. Cinco de Mayo is about the barefoot, the untooled, the warriors of want who took on the greatest army Europe ever mustered and won. I once saw a Mexican man stretched across an upturned sidewalk near Chicago's 18th and Bishop one-fifth of May Day. He brought up a near-empty bottle to the withering sky and yelled out a grito with the words, Que viva Cinco de Mayo! And I knew what he meant. What it meant for barefoot Zapoteca indígenas in the Battle of Puebla. And what it meant for me, there on 18th Street, among Los Ancianos, the moon-faced children and futureless youth, dodging the gunfire and careening battered cars. And it brought me to that war that never ends, the war that Cinco de Mayo was a battle of, that I keep fighting, that we keep bleeding for, that war against a servitude that Acompa on 18th Street knew all about, as he crawled inside a bottle of the meanest Mexican spirits. Damn. This poem's so good. This poem is incredible. And, like, 
all of his poems are like this, which is amazing. Because I feel like he has this unique ability to turn the emotion up to 10 every time. And for every time, you go with him 100% and you feel like it's earned, which is so rare to even do once. But to have that be your hallmark of most of your work is so amazing. And I think that this poem is a really good example of, you know, the ways that that happens. Because I feel like you go on a real emotional journey and I'm there for all of it, at least. I always get taken along for the ride. Yeah, no, this poem is like, <clears throat> it's got so much um, conviction. It's not didactic. Uh, like, it's not a sermon, which I feel like some poems that aspire to a similar kind of like fervor or something that aren't as good kind of fall into that's like makes it more of a a passionate lesson and this is like it has that element but it's also got so much else happening in it it's so right that i mean the fact that he can do this over and over again it's also just so hard to make it feel not the same thing you've heard over and over again. Um, especially because like, I don't know, there's so many in non poetry contexts, people just trying to give their rabble rousing speeches. Uh, and like, I feel like I've become sort of desensitized to a, a certain kind of passion because like, I mean, maybe this is like admitting too much, but, um, I don't know. It's like if you become a little disaffected by certain political processes, like the rhetoric that um, pushes it forward can feel hollow sometimes. Uh, are you it's telling not... me that you are unmoved by the fact that the top one-tenth of one percent <laughs> of people in this country control 90 percent of the wealth? No, I am I'm, I'm very moved by that. I mean, I'm... Bernie is very close to my heart, but, uh, no, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there is a certain repetition there, um, but it's not at all what you get here, um, and part of that is, of course, just the content of what he's talking about is, A, not, like, what you hear all the time, for one thing, you know, and is a kind of counter-narrative, um, in a lot of respects, um, but also just, I think the way that he goes through with it, um, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, and yeah, so like just a little bit of, um, so Cinco de Mayo is referring to, I mean, he's, he kind of talks about it, but you know, there was the, um, the Battle of Puebla, which was in 1862. Um, and basically the French, I think, were trying to like claim Mexico for their own um, after it had gone through like 300 years of colonization already. Um, and like this kind of ragtag army led by um, Benito Juarez, um, who was indigenous Zapotec, kind of fought against 
and it was Napoleon III's army or whatever. So that's kind of like what he's talking about, like the the best army Europe ever mustered. Um, and they like beat uh, they beat the French back, um, and so it was this kind of huge, like symbolic uh, moment. Um, and it wasn't apparently a lot of people confuse it with Mexican independence. It was not the same thing, but I think it was like an important spark in that push for independence. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the brief historical kind of background that he's, that he's referring to. Um, yeah, and it's just it's it's I love the way he talks about it like um you know that the war Cinco de Mayo was a battle of that I keep fighting that we keep bleeding for that war against a servitude um that like you know what what he is sort of connecting there is like the, you know, in the crudest sense, the, like, the white European, like, colonial legacy and eradication of so many indigenous people and um, is, like, one that continues to this day in many forms um, and, like, still, you know, um, like, the indigenous peoples of Mexico are still so marginalized in so many different ways, but then also like how that legacy carries on in the U S um, that resistance sort of movements uh, today are connected to the same kind of resistance that the battle like, of Cinco de Mayo, like, was a part of, I guess. Um, the resistance and... fight that never ends, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's it's very interesting, because, and this is sort of a tangent, but it just was making me think about it, you know, especially uh, since all the horrible stuff at the border and the immigration, like, policies becoming more and more like brutal and dehumanizing um and just the whole conversation about it i don't even know if i've mentioned this if i've gone on this particular uh monologue but like after that then there was a mexican-american war in which the u.s just like seized a bunch of land from mexico which now like the whole conversation, even much of it on the left, that's like we need to be welcoming or da 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 da, is like also based on a bullshit premise, which is like we're the border is like what is the wrong thing because it's you know illegally seized land that whole issue like speaks to the relevance of this kind of thing um, and how not in the past any of it it is, even if like, you know, the, the majority 
like discourse in the way that history is often taught, like wants to forget all that and just be like, well, this is just like where the U.S. was and we fought this war and manifest blah, blah, blah. And like, and then the crazy. border was somewhere different. Oh, well. yeah. And then, the, yeah. And then it's exactly. been there for a long enough time that I guess we don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so real. Just this week, I was uh, at I was covering an immigration hearing on Thursday for this guy who's an activist. His name is Marco Sevedra. And he stands out because what he's done is he has refused immigration protections available to him through DACA uh, to draw attention to the fact that even those are like very provisional versions of any kind of acceptance. And he has then used his undocumented status. He self-deported at one point so that he could go into detention centers to gather stories of people who are in them. And as a result of this, though, he's had to go into all these regular like check-ins. He's been undocumented. It's been very difficult. And he's seeking political asylum now because as an activist, the, his lawyers say that he will be in, in grave danger if he returns to Mexico, if he's deported. But at this rally in support of him before his hearing, uh, the verdict of the hearing was that they will make a decision in January. So cool. Um, <laughs> but at the hearing, the point was made several times, not just that no person is illegal, but you can't be illegal on indigenous land if you're an indigenous person, uh, which seems very logical. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, oh, how can you suddenly decide that I'm not welcome on my own land or that it's incumbent upon you to welcome me back to the land that was mine? Um, and I think there's been growing acknowledgement in some circles of the fact that all land that everybody does everything on in the United States is indigenous land. Yeah, no, that definitely has been, um, I think there has been some more awareness of that, which is, yeah, which is a, a small but good step, I think. I, yeah, I love this poem. Um, the whole poem is so strong. It's like, whoa. <laughs> there are a couple of things that particularly fascinate me about it because I feel like they are things that he does in a number of his poems that always work for him but are, a, are the kind of things that are that high wire act of if they go wrong, they go really wrong for poets. So like he'll do these really interesting, evocative runs and it all works and you're there but when you start thinking about it, you're like, wait, what exactly is going on here? So for me, that is, we are the gentle rage. Our hands hold the steam of the earth, the flowers of dead cities, the green of butterfly wings. I love that. Yeah. I don't know that I know what it means. It definitely feels right in the poem, but is there something particular he's getting at there? Well, yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I feel like, Um, you know, we are the, so that like tonally, there's a, there's a, the gentle part of the rage is like what's being evoked. And there's this kind of like beautiful, you know, our hands hold the stream of the earth, flowers of dead cities, butterfly wings. There's a kind of nature, but also like a sensitivity, um, 
that I feel like is being evoked by those images. Um, it's also like, uh, like pointing to, I don't know if this like is everything, but you know, the flowers of dead cities, like points to another, like, is it interesting way to frame, um, like, a past that had been, you know, like a, a people that had been like so harmed and uh, taken over in some ways. And of course, like the flowers are still living too, I would imagine. I mean, maybe the, maybe all of the wildlife was destroyed, but, um, and then the butterfly wings, like, I don't really know, but I mean, the like monarch butterflies, um, like always migrate um, to and from Mexico. And I know that they, there's a claiming of, of sensitivity and beauty and like affinity to something that's like, not more than, but like another aspect of it than only the like rage part. I guess, um, which I feel like that's the part that would be most familiar to like this horrible thing happened and continues to happen and we're justifiably furious about it. And you see that like in the sort of, and this is actually, it's cool that you brought that up, but this is like a part that brings it away from a sort of, passionate sermon where like there's different um tones and textures that are like being claimed by the speaker um but at the same time i know what you mean where like on the one hand it's also pretty big like like the language is general, like gentle rage is like pretty abstract. Um, like the stream of the earth, like there's a, there's in certain contexts, if I saw someone write the stream of the earth, I'd be like, I mean, this should be revised fully. Um, you know, and the flowers of dead cities, there's, there's like big, <laughs> I don't like if it was, if the whole poem was, in the vein of the stream of the earth, like that's the kind of like purpley, potentially purpley, flowery, non-specific language that I think like younger writers, you know, um, or just that, you know, writing that's not um, as strong can fall into that trap. Um, so I, I, it makes sense why that would sort of both draw you in and puzzle you because looked at a certain way, it's like, what are we talking about here? Um, but it does seem like it's, you know, everything is in the context of the whole poem. So, um, definitely. I think you're totally right. It underscores, what I think runs through the whole poem, which is an intense sense of tenderness, along with the spikes of anger and 
of, you know, history. There's just this deep caring that's going on in the poem on a really human level, uh, which then becomes a one-on-one interaction once we are introduced to this Mexican man stretched across the sidewalk, an upturned sidewalk. What a great phrase. Yeah. Um, Which I think, you know, it puts me in mind of like a bed turned over or something, like an upturned sidewalk is just neat. But I totally agree. And I think that that sentence stands out to me because it is the most general. It is the most figurative like everything else, even when it's being described very poetically, is still referencing an historical event or a person or something like a little more you can get a concrete handle on more so than we are the gentle rage, our hands hold the stream of the earth, the flowers of dead cities, the green of butterfly wings. Um, But that is also, I think, the most intensely vulnerable language that you get Um, because it's all just really gentle and soft and nice. (laughs) I mean, not soft and nice, really, but it is very, it literally says, you know, it's gentle. Um, And for that to come right after we reconquer with our feet, with our tongues, that dangerous language saying more of this world than the volumes of textured and controlled words on a page. It's like this really strong declarative and then to jump straight from that to we are the gentle rage and to move tonally and just in scope into a totally different realm is really quite something. Yeah, no, that's totally right. And I lo- yeah, I love that, that dangerous language saying more of this world than the volumes of textured and controlled words on a page, which is such an interesting thing to like lambast there, like just like written words, like fuck you, kind of, um, which, which like I totally, which makes sense in a lot of ways. And uh, like, of course, um, this might not be specifically connected to this history, but like one of the big colonial legacies was like the spread of Christianity, which was also here. And that was in part accomplished through the mass production of the Bible, you know, which was made possible by like the Gutenberg press or whatever. Um, And so the written word was an instrument of um, colonialism in a lot of respects. Um, So it makes sense to be critical of that, but it's also funny also in like a written poem to be like, fuck you, uh, like, <laughs> fuck you, me. <laughs> um, although of course this poem works so well, like orally. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was a great little moment. Um, I also like it cause it comes as sort of, you know, writing against the received history that you would get about a lot of these events, like the codified, history written by the victors, quote unquote, that you have sort of a white history of these events that does not tell the full story and does not tell a real story. In fact, it tells a sanitized version that is much more palatable to people than the actual genocidal truth. uh, Yeah. Which is necessary to recognize and so many don't. And so to say we reconquer with our feet, with our tongues. So like repopulating areas by reconquering with your feet and, uh, 
with your tongues that dangerous language saying more of this world the language of you know truth and of different experience that fills in all the gaps that those textured and controlled words on the page because what i like about that is that you have volumes of textured and controlled words which could be histories that erase or histories that in their written telling are insufficient because it's textured and controlled prose, the removal of native peoples. And it's like, no, it was worse than that, actually. Yeah. You can parse out what those words mean, but what if you didn't have to? What if you were confronted with the reality of it in a more visceral way? And I think that this poem is interesting because just as you were saying, it is written, it works well as an oral piece, but it is written so that the words are not the textured and controlled words on the page. And right after it says that, it goes into that highly figurative sentence where the words are almost going beyond the control of the subject at hand. They are like the most expansive version of being connected to it that they can be, which I really like. Yeah, I really like that too. That's so cool. It makes me think of, there was, um, I was listening to uh, another podcast, The Dig, which is like a Jacobin thing. And um, it wasn't the usual Daniel Denver host, but it was, I think, Astra Taylor, who was interviewing um, the author, uh, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who had uh, written um, like an indigenous people's history of the US. Uh, and it was cool because she had written that, but then she had just written like a, a version for kids. Um, and so they were talking about like the differences between like the quote unquote adult indigenous history and the kids version. And like Asher Taylor was saying how the kids version was in some ways like harder to read because like because it was spoken in more plain language, the brutality of like what actually happened was like so much more apparent and like viscerally stated rather than like getting lost in a more like academic kind of discourse um anyway which just i was just thinking about that um that's fascinating i know it makes me really want to read both of them absolutely together yeah um yeah but then you yeah you mentioned uh this is, I think, where the poem, what I love so much about the poem that you were talking about, the when he sees the, the Mexican man stretched across an upturned sidewalk. Um, and just like that, the moment with that man um, is so wonderful. And it's like in a, like a very basic kind of craft way of thinking about it like it's the specific that allows the sort of universal and more abstract and figurative elements of the poem to like really live i think um because we become the whole poem isn't just these like huge statements we reconquer with our feet, with our tongues, da da da. It like zooms in, and there's this kind of guy lying on the 
sidewalk um, who's like, you know, long live Cinco de Mayo, basically. Um, and both the the kind of it's I, yeah, I'm curious what you make of the specific details of the scene because it's kind of like the fact that he is, you know, um, like not in good shape uh, is a way of <laughs> saying it. You know, he's on the upturned sidewalk. He's been drinking, you know, he's inside the bottle of the meanest Mexican spirits. Um, and yet this is like the person who like for the speaker he's like I knew then what it meant like what all of this meant um, and so I was curious like he could have one could have chosen so many different people and scenes to like have this revelation um, and I was I was just wondering like what the what the significance of of this particular choice yeah yeah I think that he's basically the bridge to now and the whole poem is reflecting from a present position but there's kind of three parts to it as I see it there's the first part which is everything up to I once saw a Mexican man stretched across an upturned sidewalk. And then after that moment, specifically with the man, after he cries out, que viva Cinco de Mayo, then there's one sentence that runs to the end of the poem that begins, and I knew then what it meant. And that sentence is just this building and building and building of evidence and all these things together that has incredible momentum on the page, and there's almost no other way to read it than to sort of feel like you're rushing into a grand place. And it does slow down for a little bit at the end to sort of hit the ending, but I sort of see those as the three parts. And what it seems to me is that in seeing this guy who is clearly, yeah, as you said, he's not doing great. And he's calling out, you know, que viva Cinco de Mayo, what it seems like is that that was just a reflection for Luis Rodriguez of all of the fights left and all of the present troubles that can be traced back to colonization and, you know, genocide on the part of Europeans. And yes, Cinco de Mayo was a success and there are successes in the past, but that the, the battle, the war, as he says, you know, the war Cinco de Mayo was a battle of that I keep fighting. Um, and in that long sentence, he does look to the future and looks at what's happening, saying, you know, what it meant for me there on 18th Street among Los Asianos, the moon-faced children and futureless youth dodging the gunfire and careening battered cars. And so that seems to me like another acknowledgement of like present day issues that can be traced back to these ancient injustices. 
and that he sees himself as fighting battles on those fronts in this ongoing war for inclusion, for recognition, for, you know, acknowledgement. Um, I also love the description one-fifth of May Day because I don't know if it's just looking for a different way to say Cinco de Mayo or May 5th, but having one-fifth makes me think of the three-fifths clause in the Constitution for... Uh, you know, basically limiting the humanity of black people uh-huh. uh, yeah. to a literal number of three-fifths of a person. And it feels to me like there's a little bit of an echo of that going on there, uh, saying that, like, these are all the ways that humanity can be reduced even, you know, hundreds of years later, oppressive systems put in place because of these ancient violences, Uh can still have these effects. Not that there isn't resistance, because, I mean, the whole idea, I think, behind the poem is that the Battle of Puebla, Cinco de Mayo, is a moment of, like, power and resistance that can be drawn upon, but that there are also these really dark reflections that go along with it. Yeah. Oh, that's really right. I love that a lot. Um, It also made me think of, like, a fifth of liquor, but... Oh, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, I, well, I think it's 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 an interesting, like, it's a small, it's a clever little moment where the the fifth, it has a, a lot of meanings. I think. Um, I think yours is probably closer to the intended meaning. <laughs> uh, well. Uh, anyway, it it did remind me actually of the, the poem the Joy Harjo poem that we talked about, um, An American Sunrise, where there's this kind of like, uh, you know, we were running out of breath as we ran out to meet ourselves. We were surfacing the edge of our ancestors' fights and ready to strike. Um, It was difficult to lose days in the Indian bar if you were straight easy if you played pool and drank to remember to forget um you know a little gin will clarify the dark and make us all feel like dancing um anyway that like it yeah it for some reason the alcohol aspect of it brought me there um but there yeah i think you're totally right that the the guy is kind of an emblem of like the the disenfranchisement and like oppression and you know issues that still um you know that latinx people in the u.s and elsewhere still are like fighting against and you're so right that like that that whole sentence it's another great example of um my favorite literary device anaphora um but any, but just kind of like any kind of repetition where, you know, so it's like, and I knew then what it meant. So we got this, what it meant. And then immediately we have what it meant for barefoot Zapoteca. Uh, and then in the battle of Puebla and what it meant for me there on 18th street. Um, so we got three, what it meant, which kind of propel us, I think. Um, and then we get to like, and it brought me to that war that never ends 
the war Cinco de Mayo was a battle of that I keep fighting that we keep bleeding for that war against the servitude that a compa on 18th Street knew all about um, so there's like you know all the that's and then also the that wars um, keep coming and then again I feel like the the circle back of like on 18th Street like the little sort of parallel because 18th street kind of appears at the beginning and then it returns at the end um gives that that long sentence um you know it's kind of rhythmic momentum which the the fact that it's also one sentence is the the you know, the other big element of that where like you just keep you keep going and going um and it's just a great kind of when you can pull it off, you know, in a poem, you kind of have the ability to do these run ons because you can rely on the the line for your like keeping like basic meaning. Whereas if it's like prose, I mean, you can do run ons in prose, but um, it's a little more. It just works differently, I guess. Um yeah, so it's it's such a it's like such a powerful uh, way to end, and then the fact that it's like the meanest Mexican spirits is like such a clincher. Um, there's so much contained in those three words. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's so many meanings because, like, on the one hand, it's like okay, it's the kind of alcohol, it's a liquor, it's a spirit, it's Mexican, maybe it's like tequila or something. Um, it's mean, it's harsh, but then of course, you know, spirit like has its figurative meaning of a spirit, um, and mean like then has a different kind of meaning when it's thinking about spirits. And then the fact that it's Mexican, like inside a bottle of, then you can imagine like this sort of ghostly bottle of mean Mexican spirits that are kind of like you're inside of and you get kind of this evocation of the past in this. Uh, it's so good because it's both intensely concrete and specific. Like, you know exactly what's being described and it like is this whole world of figurative meaning. It's incredible. <laughs> I think there's also like mean, like bad, like, good bad you know like the meanest mexican spirits like oh get them which is (laughs) i don't know i feel like those are the spirits that the that are being invoked throughout the poem yeah you know and so yeah that last line yeah like he plays a mean sax yeah yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah no, it's that's really true. I love the Chicago. It's true. A couple of Chicago boys here. <laughs> <laughs> almost, we're almost Chicago boys. Yeah, that's true. Oak we Park boys. Oak, Oak Park, Park lads. Boys. Oak Park lads. <laughs> oh dear. Any other thoughts? Not specific ones. I just think that this poem, from a craft perspective, is so tight and accomplished, and I think that it's because of that the emotions work so well that it's really easy to overlook it and it's one of those 
great instances where all of the work that's being done is so strongly in service of the feeling that the poet wants you to have that you don't have to notice the work. And I really like when that happens. I love digging into and analyzing and understanding all of the work that's going on. But I think an indication of some of the finest like craft that a poet can do is to have that end goal in mind and achieve it so fully that you don't even have to notice the ways in which they made you, you know, completely feel what they wanted you to. And I think that this poem is a really, like it's hard to find poems that do that. Even great poems don't necessarily make their greatness in that way. And I think this is a really prime example of, of a poem and kind of a poet who just does that time and time and time and time again, at least for me. Yeah, no, that's really right. It's a very quiet form. Um, all the choices are, yeah, exactly what you said. Um, and it just, it's like it feels natural. Like you're like, of course, this is the way the poem had to be. Um, but like, the, the, the more you feel that way speaks to how impressive the poem, like the extent to which the poem is so amazing. Um, because it takes so much like attentiveness to to make some something feel natural <laughs> absolutely and even huge transitions in the poem like Cinco de Mayo is about the barefoot the untooled the warriors who the warriors of want who took on the greatest army Europe ever mustered and won I once saw a Mexican man stretch across an option site like wait what <laughs> yeah but in the context of the poem it doesn't actually feel that jarring and because the I don't know, like the tone with which both of those subjects are being treated is equal. And so the subject matter change doesn't feel like it matters as much. Like the subject is different, but the way that those two things are being talked about is the same for the writer. You know, they're of equal importance and weight. And so, sure, one is about Napoleon's army and this historical battle. And one is about a guy he saw one time. But those are equally important events and they are treated that way in the language. So you just kind of go with it. Oh, man. Whew. This poem is good. Sure is. Should we uh, read it again? I think so. Cinco de Mayo by Louise J. Rodriguez. Cinco de Mayo celebrates a burning people, those whose land is starved of blood, civilizations which are no longer holders of the night. We reconquer with our feet, with our tongues, that dangerous language saying more of this world than the volumes of textured and controlled words on a page. We are the gentle rage. Our hands hold the stream of the earth, the flowers of dead cities, the green of butterfly wings. Cinco de Mayo is about the barefoot, the untooled, the warriors of want who took on the greatest army Europe ever mustered and won. I once saw a Mexican man stretched across an upturned sidewalk near Chicago's 18th and Bishop one-fifth of May Day. He brought up a near-empty bottle to the withering sky and yelled out a grito with the words, Que viva Cinco de Mayo! And I knew what he meant. What it meant for barefoot Zapoteca indigenas in the Battle of Puebla. And what it meant for me there on 18th Street among Los Ancianos, 
the moon-faced children and futureless youth dodging the gunfire and careening battered cars. And it brought me to that war that never ends, the war that Cinco de Mayo was a battle of, that I keep fighting, that we keep bleeding for, that war against a servitude that a compa on 18th Street knew all about as he crawled inside a bottle of the meanest Mexican spirits. Hello again, this is co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley saying thank you so much for listening and thanks for a great 2019. This has been an incredible year for Close Talking. We made more episodes than ever. We did a special haiku series during Poetry Month where we put out one episode every single day, which we had a ton of fun doing. And judging by the download numbers, you guys seem to enjoy that. Um, We also got to go to AWP this year, where Connor represented us on a panel of literary podcasts, and we made a list of one of the best literary theory podcasts out there, so that was kind of exciting. And most importantly of all, we're looking forward to an even better 2020. We have lots of our own ideas, things we want to do with the podcast, but we also want to hear from you. And you can get in touch with us in all kinds of different ways. You can always email us, closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. That's a great way to get in touch. Connor and I are also both on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn because my name is too long to fit the at name on Twitter. And Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. You can find the podcast at Close Talking. We're also on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Close Talking. Thanks so much for 2019, and we'll be seeing you in the new year.